Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. For this first Tuesday of LGBT Pride Month, we bring you Straightening Gayness, mainstream representation under the male gaze, about television's role in winning same-sex marriage. We open with Elvin Bishop's Fooled Around and Fell in Love. All of the music was chosen by our guest, Corey Albertson, author of A Perfect Union, published by Rutledge. I'm going to rush off as quickly as possible so that we can get as much of Corey's insight on the radio as possible. Due to the nature of our format here, we had to leave a lot on the cutting room floor, but we think you'd like to hear it all, so we'll post the full conversation online for your edification and pleasure. Corey Albertson is an interdisciplinary scholar whose research spans media cultures, gender and sexuality studies, and social justice movements. He's currently a lecturer in sociology at Smith College in Massachusetts. In what follows, we'll hear clips from and discuss representations of lesbian, gay, and queer characters on the shows Grey's Anatomy, Modern Family, and The Good Wife. And a real treat, we'll hear how Miss Piggy queers The Muppet Show. We begin with Corey Albertson on the genesis of his new book and his focus on television's role in winning same-sex marriage, a seeming unquestionable good that Corey complicates for us. good friend Katie, uh, who is straight, uh, got engaged to a wonderful man named Nick, and she asked me to be the officiant for her wedding. And this was in 2010. And so at the time, I could literally sign their paperwork and be the person who signed off on their marriage, making it legal. And yet, I myself could not be a groom. I started to wrestle with should I be participating in such an exclusionary institution? And when I started to explore it from a sociological standpoint, what I found was that 2011 also was the year that the majority of the of, of heterosexuals were in favor of same-sex marriage for the very first time. And it was a nine-point increase over the previous year. And it was the largest year-to-year increase that Gallup had ever recorded. I then found that the 2010-2011 television season, which was the television season preceding that Gallup poll, had the highest number of LGBTQ characters that GLAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, had ever recorded at that time. Looking more closely at those depictions, it wasn't simply about the number of representations. We were actually seeing types of same-sex relationships that we had never seen before on television. And by that, I mean same-sex relationships that were families, that were actual relationships versus like a single character like Will on Will and Grace or Jack or Ellen, but long-standing, committed, consistent relationships, many of which had children. And so that was that was brand new. Now let's dive right into the way television actually does have an effect on our thinking. Straightening gayness, mainstream representation under the male gaze on Interchange on WFHB. Yeah. 
One of the things that we, we act as if it's almost prudish or silly or stupid to imagine the influence of television in particular on us. And now, of course, we're dealing with social media and things of this nature. And yet everything I've read and everything, again, such as the work you, you do and the work you cite in, in your book, uh, does say that these things have real consequences for how we think about our lives. And your use of, I think the term was parasocial there, um, you know, having studies that say your brain is is trying to, I guess, assimilate these ideas of what it means to make relationships, what it means to make meaning out of these other ways in which we confront the world in front of us, um, means we really do need to pay more attention to these things, right? Yes, and it's particularly important for marginalized groups, and that we you know we're talking about whether that's by race or ethnicity or ability or age or gender, uh, and in my work, particularly sexual identity. And so we know that it is even more pronounced, it is even more important when those groups are being depicted and represented. There's a famous study that was done in the mid-2000s um, that looked at 250 college students and exposed them to episodes of Will and Grace and found, and these college students were straight identified. So um, they uh, they identified as straight. And, and when they exposed the episodes uh, of Will and Grace to them, what they found was that it lowered the levels of sexual prejudice among them. And even more pronounced uh, were the effects on folks who had very little contact with gay men and lesbians. It actually lowered their levels of sexual prejudice the most. So we know Representation is important for forming friendships, for forming relationships, uh, for, you know, you know, a lot of people I know when I was little, I thought of the Muppets as my friends, right, for forming those kinds of friendships. But it is it's important for that. But it's also important for actually changing attitudes about groups and about issues. Right. Obviously, we're, we're talking about your book. It's a, a perfect union, question mark. Television and the winning of same-sex marriage. And uh, so you're, you're walking into this, uh, this particular situation and trying to depict or trying to understand the ways in which particular television shows uh, depict same-sex marriage, d- depict uh, LGBTQ relationships, uh, depict people generally, and the ways in which that, while that, as you say, may be uh, uh, definitely a good thing that representation is happening, the, it's the way that this is represented that, that you're challenging and that you're trying to be critical of. Absolutely. And so, you know, really my my argument in terms of, of, of this book is that uh, the LGBTQ movement uh, has sort of positioned itself uh, and marriage as its site of liberation. And we have sort of put all of our eggs in one big gay basket, so to speak. <laughs> and so, uh, which is something that we have historically not done. You know, when the gay rights movement, what was then called the gay rights movement, uh, started at, in 1969 with the Stonewall riots, and then it moved into the, to the 70s. And it was, as I said before, known as the gay rights movement. Also, you heard it called the gay liberation movement. That period of time, 
they were actually focused on breaking down gender norms. They were focused on disrupting conventional types of relationships, conventional ways of interacting with institutions, whether it was government, whether it was marriage, whether it was family. But we have moved from that sort of radical opposition to wanting to participate now in these institutions and positioning ourselves as, quote, just like you, in order to participate in these institutions. And so what I argue is that we see these this narrative play out in these television shows in that in order for them to be accepted, in order for those levels of sexual prejudice to go down among straight folks, that they have to really position themselves as being just like straight folks in basically every way possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, this strikes me as obvious. Uh, maybe it's not an obvious thing to speak about it, but as you talked about it, uh, you know, I've sort of ticking them off in my head in terms of programs we've done here in the past as well. And obviously there's this very a strong confluence of, of, as you say, liberation moments in many ways in the, in the 60s and, and 70s that, that begin to be rolled back with neoliberal economics, with, uh, with definitely a backlash that says we need to figure out a way to co-opt these movements so that they can, quote unquote, as you say, become normalized or, or heteroized, <laughs> right, had become heteronormative and serve a particular, um, uh, I guess, structure, social structure, in particular, the family being one of these things. Um, and, you know, men being men and women, women being women, no matter if they're gay or straight. Um, so this, this is a, a key issue in feminism. Obviously, we move from the second to the third wave and, and a sort of co-option of, of identity politics that, that removes a, a different kind of politics that, you know, that seeks to undermine convention that seeks to to question how everything has to be normal or traditional or conventional as we say uh, and to sort of undermine state power as well at that time and this has entirely been rolled back uh, with entertainment almost as at the forefront of this well and so you know just take the title modern family mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. it positions itself as a very modern show. And by modern, they mean liberal. By modern, they mean progressive. Uh, And showing something that we don't normally see, that's how they position themselves. But when you look closer, and as I study and document in my book, what you actually find is a not-so-modern family. What you really find is a nostalgia trap, because the gay couple, Cameron and, and Mitchell, on the show are actually the carriers of that traditional heteronormative family where you have one partner, the more feminized partner, who is the stay-at-home caregiver. You have the other partner who's the more masculine partner who is the you know working outside the home breadwinner and they also embody very masculine feminine tropes so the feminized character is hyper emotional the masculine partner is a little more reserved a little more practical uh and they have obviously they're living in the suburbs they have you know have a child so uh and and also later in the in the uh series they get married and so they participate in these very normative uh, creations of life mm-hmm. uh, and, and these, these creations that heterosexuals have valued uh, and that have always tried to aspire to themselves. They have had 
very little success in terms of, you know, it's had a, heterosexuals have a spotty history themselves in terms of <laughs> aspiring to uh, this traditional 1950s family. But what's really happening is because of that, the gay depictions or the same sex relationships are really the carriers of that longing for the nostalgic traditional family, which is very ironic. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think generally you you make the point too that it it maneuvers the same sex uh, or the LGBTQ community in the other direction as well. So in one sense, you know, you normalizing all aspects of it to the same purpose, you know, to sort of, um, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, as I think I said earlier, de-radicalize these opportunities, right? So uh, 2010 and 11 in particular, uh, you know, after a, a decade of war, uh, a change to an African-American president, uh, you know, there's there are all things that sort of, uh, and use the word synergies as well, that you try to understand in this world, right, in this time, it's, it's kind of a way Way to both become inclusive uh, and then normalize what might actually be a dissident group uh, where you could have strength against the status quo. Absolutely. And so we have to remember that these depictions of the same-sex relationships serve as a mode of pleasure for both straight people and the LGBTQ community. And so for the LGBTQ community, they are seeing themselves or people who at least identify, uh, maybe only in name, uh, on television. And they're seeing them in ways that they've never, never seen them before. And so by that very fact, it's pleasurable and it's powerful. On the other hand, straight folks are also seeing themselves in these depictions. They're saying, oh, hey, that's, you know, that looks like my family or, oh, that's what I want my family to be like. Uh, and so it's serving it's serving a dual pleasure there. And I think that that's one of the key purposes and ways that this has all happened in terms of the levels of acceptance is that something was created that literally served both communities. It's time for a break. This is Raining Glitter by Kylie Minogue. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. When we return, we'll ask why television gussies up gay weddings. Stay with us. Every day's the same feeling, every shade of Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. 
Our guest today is Corey Albertson, who joins us to discuss television's role in the winning of same-sex marriage. We'll hear clips from Grey's Anatomy and Modern Family, and we'll find out why gay and lesbian couples are almost hyper-heteronormative on TV. The key point here, I think, to, it's not so much maybe people per se, but roles that are represented and um, what I think you might just call a traditional representation of roles as well as a traditional representation of point of view. Uh, you know, we talk about the male gaze and, and patriarchy and these particular ways that that uh, groups are, are looked at and people are looked at and they conform to those particular roles. So let's, let's walk into a few of these programs and, and, and talk about the ways in which they depict those communities. Jackson is freaking. I thought we were getting away from Mark for the weekend. There. <laughs> He's gone. You have to get it because he's not going to stop. You're going to ask me to marry you. What? No, I'm not. In a few seconds, you're going to ask me to marry you, and then we're going to run into a truck. Well, then you better put on your seatbelt. I didn't answer you because I don't, I don't know. Put on your seatbelt. I mean, is this what love's supposed to feel like? Is this what love feels like for other people? You know, I don't really care about other people right I mean, now. Other people can do it. Meredith and Derek, Christina and Owen, Bailey's got Eli, Krebs with Lucy. Even Teddy's got that tumor patient husband. Put your seatbelt on. I want that. I want us to be like that. Because I love you. <laughs> I do. Put on your seatbelt. <laughs> This is from Grey's Anatomy, and we're hearing Callie and Arizona, and they are uh, in in a car, and they're traveling uh, to a, a lovely romantic weekend. And so you hear Callie say to to Arizona, "I want that." She literally says, "I want that." And when she the that that she is talking about is marriage, is traditional relationships, is family, all of these things. And she's literally comparing herself to heterosexuals. She's saying, I want what they have. I want to be a part of that. And in the, in the book, this sort of serves as the overall narrative of, of my argument is that we are, in terms of argument, saying, I want that. I want to have all of those things. And it's such an interesting depiction because it is laid out so explicitly in that one scene of really upholding those traditional heteronormative values and not only just upholding it, saying that you really want them, that you really want to participate in them and that you will ultimately. Let's talk a little bit about what is heteronormative then in these situations, because one of the things that I think um, needs to be understood is when we th when we talk about marriage and family, uh, most people I think obviously have this sense of what that means. You know, there are very very many ways to imagine social and collective organization in the West, in particular. There is the family, and the family, even though it also is a construct that has a history, it's almost uh, at this 
this point been been the natural way of being, right? So there's uh, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, which didn't work out so well there either. <laughs> but no. but uh, this is the idea, right? Historically, uh, people who believe in these things say, oh, there's always been Adam and Eve, right? There's always been marriage. There's always been the traditional family unit. And that is how society is best served. And here you have uh, again, as you say, the convention, the uh, sort of anti-convention, which is, you know, uh, homosexual relationships, which are, uh, and I'm not even sure how to use, if, if we need to use the word sexual in there in, in many ways, like uh, the idea that same-sex people get together is a, um, a descent from that tradition. And here you're pointing out that it's the tradition that is seeking to pull them in and the representation on television says that uh, the same-sex couple wants exactly the same thing as everyone else does. And that's problematic to you then? Absolutely. And so we see this play out in another uh, scene uh, with Tally in Arizona. Once she declares that she wants that, later in the season, she actually does get it and she marries Arizona. And the wedding scene is juxtaposed uh, alongside a wedding scene of Meredith and Derek, who are the main straight couple on Grey's Anatomy. And so they, they edit back and forth between the two marriages. And Callie in Arizona, uh, they are they do the straight wedding better than the straight folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are they are in the frou-frou white dresses. They are walking down the aisle. Men are giving them away. They have traditional vows. It's hosed down in pink. I mean, it looks like just Pepto-Bismol has you know, just exploded all over the scene, right? And then you juxtapose that with Meredith and Derek, and they are in like the dull, drab, gray courthouse, right? And they don't even have rings. And so they're just, you know, doing it so that they can, you know, uh, get get on with it. And, and I think adopt a baby. They're just doing it for practical reasons. Whereas Cali and Arizona are, ha- they have the big show wedding. And so it's, it's quite a important scene in that it really does depict that in order for gay folks or same-sex relationships to be taken as legitimate, they have to participate in straightness, if you want, if for want of a better word, they have to participate in heteronormativity, which here we see it with the wedding and the way that the wedding is depicted. They have to do it better and bigger and more traditional than the straight folks. And so that also sort of speaks to a larger point of what we have to do to be accepted, but then at the same time, we are simultaneously upholding these norms. What's interesting there in that juxtaposition is the devaluing of marriage on the other side of it. Yes, exactly. And this speaks, though, to what you could call straight privilege, because by their very straightness, they don't have to worry about their legitimacy. Mm. They can go and they can depict a marriage that does not look like their traditional marriage, um, that is not even really taking marriage seriously. Mm -hmm. They're only doing it literally so that they can sign off on this other paperwork. And, and, you know, they don't even, again, like I say, they don't have rings. They even say that they forgot their rings and they didn't have time to prepare. They say that in the scene. And so that speaks to the power dynamics that, same-sex relationships experience versus straight couples. Straight couples now have the privilege of not worrying about marriage, of 
of actually devaluing marriage if they want to and still being able to maintain their power and privilege. Is there like it struck me as more interesting to think in to think in that space when you know, when you talk about how it's depicted and the grayness of it and the almost uh, you know the 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 bland institutionality of it, right? And you talk about legitimizing that with uh, with governmentality with the fact that that it's given the the stamp of approval by documents and by the the institution itself uh, depicted in these buildings, but to imagine the washed out grayness of that particular situation and the lack of Im- importance or the only practical importance of it, you know, is is to say what about is to comment how on the overblownness of the the gay wedding then you know the uh, to comment on yeah you're we're giving you all this frou-frou and and letting you be you know so uh so like us in a traditional sense and yet this is this is the reality that that we value this is the reality that's more important this is the reality that says that marriage doesn't matter you know that you're now buying into the myth that we've already exposed is a myth right <laughs> so like i'm trying to understand how the gray non important wedding really comments on the over the top wedding yeah and i think it one of the things that it speaks to is our growing dissatisfaction with marriage and when i say our i mean the broad, just the U.S. public mm-hmm. altogether, uh, we have consistently seen that the numbers of folks who say, I want to get married, is going down. Every year that that poll is taken, it goes down another couple of percentage points, and people are becoming less invested in the idea of marriage by and large. Mm. And so that's sort of a broader social trend that we're seeing. But then at the same time, within this broader social trend, you are seeing these sorts of depictions and and same-sex couples and the LGBTQ community fighting for this thing that is becoming, in a lot of respects, less important to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there's this really fascinating sort of duality there. uh, And on the one hand, the LGBTQ community has, as I said before, put all the eggs in this one gay basket. And so now we've got it and we're all excited and we want to, you know, represent it. But we're losing our interest in it as a whole in terms of society. And so it I think the scene um, in the, the grayness, the blandness that you that you uh, rightly said uh, speaks to sort of the broader social views on marriage. Uh, and then, um, again, I think this is where. The LGBTQ community with the Cali and Arizona wedding is serving as that nostalgia trap for and pleasure for heterosexuals, because even though we are not interested in marriage as much anymore, we still hold this nostalgia for the heteronormative 1950s family that never really existed for a good portion of the American public. Mm. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, since we're in marriage now. I guess we can walk into uh, um, modern fam- family also uh, because there is marriage there as well. Good morning. Hey. What's this? Well, I know you've had some late nights with Lily, and this is just my way of saying thank you and I love you. Oh, thank you. And this is just the beginning, Paris. Today is your day. Today. Yeah. All day. <laughs> today. T- today's my day. 
Something's happening. It's Mother's Day, Mitchell. So? You're bringing me breakfast in bed on Mother's Day. Okay, no, no, this is not a Mother's Day breakfast. This is a breakfast that happens to You think to me of on... me as Lily's mother. I'm your wife. I'm a woman. What? Honestly, I'm a little offended that he accused me of that. I'm actually very sensitive to that issue. <laughs> like, I would ever treat my partner as a woman. Somebody got new curtains. Well, Mrs. Pritchett loves to shop. Oh, we're never going to be done by six. I better call home. The wife's not going to like this. <laughs> Sometimes I think he just wants to be mad at me. I can't eat. Okay, you know what? If you can't accept the nice gesture, then just forget it. Okay, scratch the balloons. She is on a mood. One of the things um, that I guess uh, in, in all of our clips that we'll think about is, is the way in which all of these um, characters participate in a gendered role and how uh, the role itself, the gendering of the role stay consistent even within these uh, these communities that, that are not heteronormative, but the roles they play are heteronormative. Right. And you see that in the clip from Modern Family uh, in very explicit ways. Uh, that particular episode was called an episode called Mother's Day. And you have Cameron, who, again, is the stay-at-home caregiver, being sort of thrust into the Mother's Day celebrations, not only by his husband, but also later in the episode by all of the fellow moms that he typically meets on a weekly basis for playdates. Uh, and here we're talking about heterosexual uh, moms. And so they call him an honorary mom. And he struggles with this. And it's a site of obviously comedy. Um, but at the same time, they're addressing this issue, but then they are also reproducing the fact that you have to have a feminine partner and a masculine partner in order to have a couple, in order to have a relationship. And this is a dynamic that we see and that I document in my book across the board for both the same-sex women couples and the same-sex men couples. And so you see both of them. With the men, it's far more explicit. You typically have one man who is hyper-emotional, who is the caregiver, who stays at home while the other partner is the more masculine, likes sports, drinks beer, you know, all these sort of very stereotypical masculine tropes, and is obviously also the breadwinner. Among the women, though, you see it sort of play out in some very interesting ways. Uh, they are also... Um, masculine and feminine you always have a masculine and feminine partner where one of the feminine partner tends to be more emotional tends to care more about the relationship where the uh masculine partner tends to be more practical uh tends to be um more aggressive sexually aggressive also more competitive uh with regard to her work uh and so you see these play out in different ways but they are unmistakable in that they are very much reproducing that whole masculine feminine argument that you have to have that in order to have a successful relationship. And this really speaks to, you know, the lens that heterosexuals use to identify same sex couples. You know, when you have a straight person go up to a gay couple and say, okay, which one is the boy and which one is the girl? Yeah. Right. And so we see, you know, that's an extreme example of, of disrespect and an extreme example of using heterosexuality to, uh, to identify and understand a relationship. But we see that, that this is a version of that question that is playing out in these depictions. It's time for another break. 
Our music is Chapel of Love by the Dixie Cups. Stay tuned for more about what's acceptable for gay and lesbian characters under television's male gaze. This is Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Straightening Gayness, Mainstream Representation Under the Male Gaze. And our guest is Corey Albertson. For this segment, we'll talk about the way gay male sex is always played for laughs, while lesbian sex can be highly amorous. You know, I was trying to understand the, the sort of hyper... As you say, I think hyper-responses or the way that these characters are kind of overdrawn to represent these particular gendered responses. One's the man and one's the woman, one's the breadwinner, uh, one's emotional, that kind of thing. I try to think about the other relationships in the show as well, right? Uh, you point out there's a particular scene in which um, Jay Pritchett, the, the sort of, uh, I guess, patriarch of the family, uh, who has uh, a stereotypically married a much younger woman after being divorced, uh, uh, Jay and his son-in-law, uh, Phil, right? Phil is, uh, they have a, uh, a class, again, for TV and for film, a classic, uh, no, really, I'm straight moment where they accidentally uh, visually look like they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, right? Um, so they they have to like or you from know from my land something that they should do. Well, so sure, sure. Like we we just uh we just all of a sudden and this is not unusual, right? I think it was in uh, what popped into my head when uh, was planes, trains, and automobiles, where John Candy and Steve Martin wake up together in bed and their hands are. I think Steve Martin's hands are between John Candy's legs, right? And they jump up and start talking about sports. Uh, you know, it's the same kind of situation that we've seen over and over again in that program though it's interesting because i would say phil kind of represents a very fluid ground himself right he does phil uh tends to be uh the one who's sort of well he's he's a caricature on one hand because he's sort of the the bumbling you know heterosexual male who can't really do anything competently on his own right uh and he always needs help whether it's from his wife or or from 
uh, Jay, who is the uh, patriarch. And so this is sort of what you see in that particular scene because they are they're cooking, which even in itself is sort of speaks to sort of uh, gender fluidity. Uh, and so they're cooking and Jay is, is the one who's cooking in old fashioned his mother's recipe and he gets nostalgic for his mother mm-hmm. uh, and he starts to tear up and Phil witnesses sort of Jay sort of showing this rare uh, emotionality. Uh, and he goes to hug him. And uh, and so they have this sort of moment where it's a very homosocial moment uh, where Phil is behind him. And what I argue is that two straight men can display that sort of physicality and that sort of homosociality and allude to gay sex because it's for comedy. And it's meant to say, oh, wait, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. But then on the flip side of that, and this is something that I found across all the depictions of gay men. And so I looked at three um, specific um, gay couples, one in Glee, one in Desperate Housewives, and then the one in uh, Modern Family, is that they never or rarely show same-sex men's sexuality. They, They... don't show them kissing. And if they do, it's literally for like two seconds on my family in particular. I believe there were censors in place at the time that said that you could not show uh, two men kissing. And so they tried to get around it. For example, there's a scene where Mitchell is shaving uh, and Cameron goes to kiss him. And so you literally can't see their skin touch because of the shaving cream. Mm. And so these are how, this is how the producers you go get around it. And they kissed, I think, five times in the whole series and three of those were on the cheek. And that was as much sexual relationship as we got to see between those two characters. And so on the one hand, you can see this comedic take between those two straight men, but that's more sexuality than we ever see from the gay men. And so Mm -hmm. what that says is that we are still very uncomfortable with showing the sexuality of two gay men mm. on television. Well, I think you point that out as, as you track the male gaze through the large uh, large portion of the book. This is a part of that, right? The male gaze, at least the normative, uh, white, uh, heterosexual male gaze that, that both produces, uh, puts on the programming, pays for the advertising, you know, all these things uh, becomes the the um, I think um, I forget the term you use social surrogate right before uh, for these situations doesn't want to gaze at uh, male gay sex but is happy to gaze at female gay sex you know the, as we continue to mark how men objectify pretty much everything <laughs> for sex purposes um, this is also a key aspect of these relationships and how the women even the less lesbian relationships are are sexualized to serve the male gaze surprise surprise yeah, uh, yeah. you know the heterosexual men are um, allowing uh, very explicit depictions of two women having sex because as you say it it certainly upholds the male gaze and it gives pleasure to heterosexual men and so this speaks to sort of the broader um, characteristic of heteronormativity. One of the characteristics of that is that women have to maintain themselves in with traditional Western beauty standards. And so even though you have one partner in terms of the women's relationships, you have one partner who is more masculine and one partner who is more feminine, when you're looking at them, they still maintain those Western 
beauty standards. And so this is across the board, whether it's the white women or whether it's women of color that we see within those depictions. And then on top of all of that, they are typically shown having a more consistent sex life and they are shown in more explicit, serious, so not for comedy, uh, sex scenes. And so this is very much still servicing the male gaze, whereas the two men, heterosexual men, don't have a need for that. They don't have a need. They don't get pleasure. They're not supposed to get pleasure from that. So why depict it? They get comedy from it, though. They get comedy from it. <laughs> right, exactly. right. Well, so, you know, that Modern Family is a difficult one in, in terms of, you know, trying to understand its sexual, like its sexual politics isn't so hard, but it's not obviously a sexual show in the sense that it's entirely a comedy in, in that way. And so there's there's very little what I would call sexual feeling in the show at all. Um sure. I don't think, right? Um, Phil's wife, I forget, I'm forgetting her name now. Um, she's a Jay Pritchett uh, imitator in some sense, right? She's the actual man of the Pritchett family, right? Yeah, in a lot of respects. and But yet she's still sort of trapped in the more traditional well, character. That's role, right. Plus she looks right? that but, way. But she's she's blonde. Confident. Yeah, she's blonde. She's attractive, you know. Uh, and, but they but, do allude. That one, you know, what's interesting is they do. Uh, so I will make the note that I only looked at one particular season. I wanted to look at the particular season that I felt mm -hmm. you know, moved, you know, the favorability of, of straight folks in that Gallup poll. Um, but even within that one season, while they didn't show the straight characters having sex, they showed them talking about it seriously. They showed them sort of trying to work them work sex into their relationship and struggling with ways to incorporate that having children, mm. incorporating sex into the relationship. So sex was addressed um, in a serious but also comedic way. Um, in terms of the healthiness of their relationship, mm. which is something that we don't see at all. We don't even have a discussion about it right. uh, in terms of the gay main characters. And we know that studies consistently show that if you if you look at couples, gay male couples, um, lesbian couples, and then straight couples, that out of those three groups, gay men are having the most sex followed by the straight couples and then the lesbian couples. Uh, and so they're not showing an accurate depiction or any, anywhere near a representational depiction of what's actually going on uh, in terms of what gay men are experiencing. Mm. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's a difficult thing to, to think about, right? I mean, that, that to me does speak to the glaring absence in, in, in the programming, the glaring absence in um, in the, in the, in, at least in the ones that you, uh, investigated, explored, watched the idea again, uh, as you say, doesn't fit the particular, uh, um, I guess idea of masculinity, uh, and that has to still be kept underground in many ways. Um, it, as you say, uh, in, you know, it won't service the particular, uh, male viewers or maybe the particular male consumers. I don't know. It's, it's where the feminine, uh, homosexuality won't offend the male consumer and won't make the male angry. Uh, whereas, you know, for whatever reasons, be they latent uh, homosexuality in themselves or the idea that you can't visualize these, uh, uh the, the man, uh, the man on man sexual relationship. It's really, a, it's really a fascinating, I guess, way to look at our culture, right? Well, as you say, this is a fact of the culture that cannot be shown. And I think sort of if you want to 
just broaden all that out a little bit and sort of speak to the point that what this is all really doing is it is upholding our traditional mm-hmm. notions and structures of power. Right, right. And that power situates itself on heterosexuality. It also situates itself on um, certain class statuses. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, it situates itself on whiteness. And all three of those things are shown in these depictions as having the most social clout, the most social power, and it's still, and all these depictions service those three things. And so that's why I argue that they are really not changing things. They are not modern. Oh, right, 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 right. It's time for our final break. This is White Wedding by Billy Idol. Coming up, the queer character as tantalizing other, a very racist representation of minority women. Stay with us. to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Corey Albertson is our guest. He's written a book called A Perfect Union, Television and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. In this final segment, we'll turn to a representation of queerness in the show The Good Wife, in the character of Kalinda, played by English actress Archie Punjabi. Is it possible she's following in the queer footsteps of the Muppet Show's Miss Piggy? I do want to, again, because I have some personal knowledge of the show, I want to move into The Good Wife and Kalinda in particular, because I think she's, a, a fa- again, another fascinating way in which uh, the idea of a lesbian uh, uh, sexual presence is confounded by the what is a very heteronormative um, visual response to Kalinda and and her own ways in which she is, but also because she is, I would assume, an exotic other to many people. So also sort of conforms or doesn't conform in that particular way or can be used as a sexual object in the male gaze. Right. So Kalinda is what I consider the most fascinating character mm-hmm. out of all the characters that I uh, studied in this in this book. And so the reason being is that she refuses to identify herself and she, even when she is policed and this brings in the term societal surrogate that, that you mentioned earlier, where basically any character that brings a normative societal value to another character for the purposes of policing them or putting them in their place or putting them in their box. I call that character societal surrogate. And so there's, there's the scene where Blake uh, who is a fellow investigator, asks her, right, uh, why haven't you come out, basically? Uh, and she totally turns around on its head, and she asks him if he's coming out in the scene. 
Hey, do you know uh, what I, Lee Gal, is? It's the Illinois Lesbian and Gay Law Association. They just raided Chicago law firms on their diversity in hiring gays and lesbians and transgenders and whatever. Anyway, Lockhart, Gardner, and Bond did not do well. Even though I know for a fact that we have gay associates who just aren't acknowledging that they're gay. Now, in this day and age, why would someone not be upfront about their sexual orientation? Are you coming out? Kalinda refuses to identify herself. She, But that's not just in terms of her sexual identity. She actually refuses to play within any form of boundaries except for traditional hyperfemininity in terms of her appearance. Uh, she refuses to work within, you know, the police system in traditional ways. She doesn't work through bureaucratic ways. Um, she doesn't follow, you know, quote unquote, appropriate sexual politics. All of these ways that she subverts institutions and systems um, makes her what I call a queer character uh, because she is consciously doing that as a conscious choice. But then you get to her appearance and she is hyper feminine. And so she's, you know, dressed in, you know, high leather boots. She's always in a miniskirt. She wears, you know, shirts and sweaters that are cinched at the waist. She has long hair and sort of what you speak to. She is definitely the exotic other uh, within these shows. And this is a problematic depiction in terms of race, because what we end up seeing um, across the board in these television shows is that the women of color are often the more masculinized partner and Kalinda is no exception. She's very competitive with her work. She's um, aggressive in multiple um, aspects of her life. Uh, she's sexually aggressive. Uh, she's very practical too. Um, she refuses to care um, about her romantic relationships uh, in, in the show. And so we see that also play out with the other characters, uh, the other masculinized women characters. And so what I argue in the book is that this is a holdover of sort of our racist stereotypes that we have had in this country about African-American women, but also uh, what that we've had about South Asian women, Latino women, where we have typically used stereotypes of them being strong, being able to endure hardship, uh, being able to be, you know, or being hyper, hyper aggressive or sexually aggressive, uh, sexually promiscuous, all of these sort of very problematic tropes that we have created to uphold our racist ideals we're seeing play out in these women characters. So they are now, we talked earlier about how the characters are carriers of the 1950s families. These women, women, these women of color are now car- carriers of our racist stereotypes. Hmm. Well, uh, I agree with you. Kalinda is uh, easily the most interesting character on that program as as a program that seeks to what create a uh, a lean in Hillary Clinton model woman in its main female characters right which are um you know as as basic you know white women as they can be um and then Kalinda as you say is is powerful and yet honestly a throwaway in many ways right like she's going to do the dirty work and if something happens to her that's the way it goes in many cases but she also you know because there's a sense that she has she lacks loyalty 
also, right? Like she's she sleeps around and that's disloyal in in a very very main way in the program, but she's also up for hire, right? She's up for bid also. So she she does confound a lot of those things, but she is the almost the woman that undermines the 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 strength of the the white uh, heteronormativity in the show, to, you know, so you have to sort of be able to make use of a Kalinda and then be able to step on her at the same time. Yes. And so that's a great point uh, that you make in terms of Kalinda's own duality. And this is, I think, been a function of queer folks and folks who challenge norms throughout history mm. is that we rely on them to show us uh, what normalcy is. We rely on them to subvert normalcy when it needs to be subverted, to challenge it when it needs to be um, challenged. But then we also use them as scapegoats. We also use them as the person to step on. We use them to climb over, you know, to get to wherever wherever it is that, you know, the people in power are going. And so I think Kalinda functions as that within the show. And so in that regard, it's a pretty traditional function of queer folks. And if you want to just argue more broadly, marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, no, I agree entirely. Well, uh, let's, let's shift uh, at the very end here. Let's shift into uh, the personal element of two programs in particular that you praise or praise for your own self-development or understanding yourself as well, or, or finding that uh, I, I'm blanking on the word again, parasocial, I think is what the word was. Yeah. Um, so you talk about Star Trek and you talk about the Muppets. <laughs> Muppets, of course, were uh, a thing I watched growing up. Also, um, interesting to try to think about television like that within these frameworks that you're trying to understand with shows like Desperate Housewives, uh, The Good Wife, um, and uh, Modern Family that do replicate male gaze, stereotypical, you know, female as sex object tropes throughout, even if even as they try to complicate the politics, perhaps they're constantly moving back into woman as sex object for the most part. Where does the Muppets, you know, obviously, we talk about the Muppets, I can't really bring a sexualized content to the Muppets. Um, but you do point out that that the Muppets work hard, or at least did work hard, to be both adult and childish in many ways, to deal with themes in a particular way that kind of crossed that boundary. Is that the kind of TV that that is, in a, in a sense, healthy TV? Well, this is a hard question for me to answer because, you know, you're tapping into sort of, you know, six-year-old Corey here. <laughs> uh, and I and I fully admit I cannot be uh, objective when I'm talking about the Muppets. Uh, my love for Miss Biggie has no bounds. What about Fraggle Rock? <laughs> well, Fraggle Rock, too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in all seriousness, uh, you know, I, I talk about both the Muppets and Star Trek uh, at the end of the book to sort of illustrate – why and how we form relationships to television characters and how much they can impact us on a very personal level. I don't go back and actually analyze the shows, mm-hmm. but speak to, you know, how important they were to me personally as a young, then I didn't know I was gay. I knew I was different, but I didn't know what gay was 
this is again in the in the uh, you know mid eighties, um, but I recognized the difference that was was that was being showcased on the Muppets and later on Star Trek, and I identified with that and I latched onto it um, as a way of healing, as a way of of seeing myself in these shows, or, or, or and also having friends. Um, these these were the folks that I saw every week uh, in you know in my small rural. Um, hometown, which was very masculine, uh, and and or actually was just very much upheld masculine norms, which I did not uh, want to participate in, and so uh, so these were my friends, and so I speak to sort of how important that was to me, but I think you know if we were to look at them in a in a sociological way, you know I think that this speaks to what we always have to do with with television and movies is that we have to be able to recognize both where they push the boundaries and then where they don't and and see how those two things work together to complicate each other uh and to challenge you know what we're experiencing on a daily level and i think that jim henson was very articulate and very nuanced in doing that in creating a show that as you say both appealed to children but then was shown in prime time and had very much adult humor and i would argue there was sexual humor there especially on the part of miss biggie she was mm-hmm. uh, she was always after kermit <laughs> and was always loving on him and trying to get kisses from him and uh, she was, you know, she was the precursor to P- Kalinda. She was very much out for herself. She was very much trying to uh, subvert the norms of the show and do what was best for her. Um, at the same time, being hypersexual and hyper and hyper aggressive, uh, which is how we ha- we had not seen, you know, depictions of women like that. If you, you know, or pigs, <laughs> um, you know, at that time, uh, and we haven't seen any depictions of pigs since, but we have seen depictions of women. Miss um, Miss Piggy is 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 on an island unto her own. That's our show. Our final song is "Marriage Is for Old Folks." by Nina Simone. I love dancing, crazy romancing, fellas advancing constantly. Marriage is for old folks, old folks not for me. One husband, one wife, what do you got? Two people sentenced for life. Thanks to Corey Albertson for joining us to talk about his book, published by Rutledge, A Perfect Union, about the power of television to advance and undermine acceptance as it bends representations of difference to the heteronormative center of the sexual and political spectrum. And thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is our editor. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. To quit being free And I'm not willing To stop being me I gotta sing my song Why should I belong To some guy who says That I'm wrong